you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, we covered pretty much the first half a couple weeks ago, and we'll cover the second half uh, this afternoon. I want to read you a story that reminds me of what's happening here in Acts, and I probably won't draw too many conclusions because you are all intelligent people and can see the parallels to this story from history to the story that we're going to read in a little bit in Acts 19. This is from an article that I found online written in 2009 by a guy named Roy Jenkins of the BBC writing about a historical event. He writes this, just after 11 o'clock on a Wednesday evening in 1904, a solo voice rang out with the hymn, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, which we just sang, if you remember. <laughs> Maybe a thousand people were in Ebenezer Baptist Church, Abertillery at the time, leaning over the galleries, packing every pew and squeezing into every spare corner. They'd been here for more than four hours in a service of intense emotion. Meetings like it were taking place across Wales night after night with fervent prayer and passionate singing and similar disregard for the clock. They both excited and appalled, left many puzzled and some frightened, but it was reckoned that in a little over a year, 100,000 people had made a new commitment to Jesus Christ. For a period, whole communities changed as men and women found themselves drawn into a powerful experience of God and sparks from their awakening were soon to ignite fires in more than a dozen other countries. And the hymn that soloist struck up spontaneously about love vast as the ocean was heard so often that it became known as the love song of the revival. A hundred years ago, coal was making Abertillery a booming commercial center as families flocked in to find work in the pits. Churches were already thriving, but revival hit the place like a hurricane. And less than 10 weeks, and in less than 10 weeks, no fewer than 3,000 people had made professions of faith. That's more than 10% of the population, a staggering response by any reckoning. Week by week, Abertillery's local paper, the South Wales Gazette, recorded events with the enthusiastic eloquence of the day. This is what the paper said. This is a paper in 1904, so language is a little bit older. Uh, the revival has been the absorbing theme of thought and discussion. Before it, the war, the state of trade, ordinary and extraordinary political topics, and even football have been thrown into the shade as topics of general conversation. Drunkards have been soberized. Publicans, the people who ran the bars, have lost much business. Conduct on public streets has been elevated, and the police and magistrates have had quieter times. The bottom of the pits have been utilized as centers for prayer and praise meetings, and there has been a general raising of the standard of public life. Such as one person's description of what's known as the Welsh Revival of 1904 and 1905. Well, the book of Acts that we're in describes similar things, doesn't it? It describes for us the early days of the Christian church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, as well as the, the sending of the Holy Spirit to live in and work through all the true followers of Jesus. Luke, the author of this book, records for us all that Jesus, he says, continued to do and teach through the Spirit and dwelt and empowered followers 
that he had called to himself and how the gospel spread from this upper room in Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's the story of how what was seen to be a small faction of the Jewish faith became instead a worldwide community of faith that shook the very foundations of the Roman Empire and every other earthly kingdom for that matter. If that makes Acts sound like a history book, like any other, then let me remind you that there's more to it than that. Because Acts is part of God's divinely inspired word. Um, It's applicable to us. Eugene Peterson writes of the scriptures, like the book of Acts, he says, this text is no word to be studied in the quiet preserves of a library, but a voice to be believed and loved and adored in workplace and playground on the streets, and in the kitchen. In other, way, in other words, there's a way to live the book of Acts and the way that we've tried to get its message, as Peterson says, into our kitchens is by saying that Acts is an invitation. It's an invitation to join in on the never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. So we across space and time are able to link arms with the likes of Peter and Philip and Stephen and Barnabas and even the Apostle Paul to continue to do what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission and what he sent the Spirit to empower us to do. We're part of this same work of making disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. We are a part of this story. Paul caught a vision for this a vision for announcing the kingdom to everyone, and it controlled his entire life. Two weeks ago when we left him in Ephesus, he was in the middle of his third missionary journey. These journeys were extended and difficult journeys that he made in order to take the name of Jesus to places where no one knew who Jesus was. Paul's going to tell us in Acts chapter 20 that he spent three years in Ephesus as part of that effort. And he began those years in the Jewish synagogue for three months, but soon after he moved to this place, you remember the school of Tyrannus, where for two years he reasoned every day with anyone who would show up. I saw a few more details of what that looked like in the school of Tyrannus. He probably was there from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. Uh, The work day in that time didn't run from 9 to 5. Rather, people would begin work at about sunrise when it's cool, and by 11 o'clock, when it started to get warm, they would, they would take a break, and the break would go from 11 until 4 o'clock, and work would resume, resume at 4 o'clock as things started to, to cool down. The schools would probably take a break at that time too. And so Paul said, well, I can rent the Hall of Tyrannus while everyone's taking a nap. And so he did. And there were some people that instead of taking a nap, came to listen to Paul preach and teach and tell them about the kingdom of God. And so he taught anyone who would show up and people showed up until we're told that all the residents of Asia heard the message of the gospel. Everyone heard. Those grand results don't mean that his time in Ephesus was easy though. Let's always remember that we should not assume that ministry and mission work are glamorous or pain-free or discouragement-free. Even when things are going well, they can be hard. Often the the opposite of, of this sort of glamorous lifestyle is what's, is what's true. And that was true for Paul as well. During his third missionary journey, he probably wrote the letters to the, the Corinthians, so First and Second Corinthians, as well as a couple other letters we don't have. Those were probably written on this third 
uh, missionary journey. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, this is how he describes his work in Ephesus. He said it was like fighting beasts. That's not easy work. And then he says uh, of those years in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, we were completely overwhelmed and the burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that this was the end. Yet we believe now that we had this experience of coming to the end of our tether that we might learn to trust, not in ourselves, but in God who can raise the dead. And so as you think about Paul ministering in Ephesus, we can think about the fact that it was in weakness and it was amid opposition that Paul and his companions proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus. And as they're pushing their own physical boundaries and they're pushing their own emotional limits, people are hearing the gospel and people are submitting to Jesus as king. We saw last time that that people truly understood this message, clearly proclaimed, and it was a message of the good news of forgiveness, but they also understood that it meant that Christ had come to be king over every part of their lives. And so in this city, people started to forsake false worship, and they started bonfires with the magic books that they had formerly trusted in and, and even worshiped. You might think that the effects of religious fervor in Ephesus would be contained within the walls of the church, that that's the only place that the effects would be found. And yet the aftershocks of the earthquake of Christianity in Ephesus went into the, that, that came into the hearts and the, uh, of men and women in Ephesus, those aftershocks shook the entire city of Ephesus. When Christ truly reigns as king in the church, the surrounding culture feels its effects. The reign of King Jesus shakes the foundations of every other rival kingdom. It shakes the foundation of society itself. We've said often that Acts tells us that the message of the gospel turned the world upside down. And when the hearts of the Ephesians were turned upside down, the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom spread deep and wide. And that's still true. It's still true that when we truly enthrone Christ as King in our hearts and in our churches, we will not be the only ones who are affected because the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom will spread deep and wide. That's what I want us to think about this afternoon. This idea, the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom will spread deep and wide. That's what happened in Ephesus. It's what happened in Wales in 1904. Bars started going out of business and the police officers didn't have anything to do. One account I think says that they started sort of a barbershop quartet and went around and sang hymns. The police did. (laughs) It's what happens all throughout church history when God's people are truly devoted devoted to him and they call others to a life of that kind of devotion. It affects everything. Let me ask you, could this be the secret to changing the world and the culture around us? Not asking secular people to act like they know who Jesus is. Not by using laws or political power to bring reform, but rather by enthroning Christ as king in our hearts and letting him reign over everything, letting him be king of our church, and then 
by proclaiming this gospel that calls for an all of life devotion, by proclaiming that in the world, not watering it down, but saying Jesus wants everything and there can be no rival kings in your life if you want to follow him. If we do that, then we might watch false worship around us crumble because the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom will spread and they'll spread deep and they'll spread wide. I want to read Acts 19 verses 21 through 41 and you'll hear this detailed account of how the gospel shockwaves went through Ephesus on one particular day. And those waves shook the economy of Ephesus. They shook the local labor union. They shook the temple of Artemis and more. And seeing this, then we're going to think about how our devotion to Jesus can also have such far-reaching, earth-shaking effects. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. God's word says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they realized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are really, we, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom will spread. 
deep and wide. Now, before we get into the events of that momentous day in Ephesus, Luke gives us some insight in verses 21 and 22 of Paul's future travel plans. Remember, this is a very geographical book. Uh, Paul had a God-sized vision for the spread of God's kingdom, and having been uh, to many of the major cities within the Roman Empire, he had set his eyes on going to Rome. Uh, I wonder if this is something that he and and Priscilla and Aquila had talked about since they had been driven from Rome by Claudius, or, or maybe it was just part of his wider strategy. It could have to do with the fact that about this time, Claudius was no longer the emperor. A guy named Nero, who you may have heard of, had taken over. And so now Christians were allowed to go back into the capital city. They were flooding in there. And maybe Paul wanted to get there and encourage the church or proclaim the gospel there. We don't really know. But we know from the book of Romans that his vision actually wasn't just to get to Rome, but he wanted to get to Rome and then he wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to travel even further to the furthest reaches of the empire. But here in the book of Acts, the push is going to be towards Rome. And that push towards Rome is going to drive the rest of this book. We're just trying to get to Rome from this point on. This is a real watershed moment in the book of Acts. But we've got some stops to make along the way before we get there. But Paul says here that he also, before he gets to Rome, he wants to go to Macedonia. Uh, I've got another helpful map hopefully up here. This one's really small because it shows both Paul's missionary journey, his third missionary journey, and then his voyage to Rome. Um, You can see he started here in Antioch and went up through the Galatian area with these original churches over to Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he's going to go up into Macedonia, which is these familiar towns of Berea and Thessalonica. He's probably going to get down to Corinth as well. Um, And then he's going to come back through, back down through land in Miletus. Next week, we'll see him meet with the Ephesian elders, elders in Miletus and then head back to Jerusalem before he hitches a free ride uh, with some Romans to Rome. Uh, but we'll talk more about that later. But anyways, right now he's, he's in Ephesus, but he says, I want to go to Macedonia. I want to go back. He probably wants to go back and encourage um, these churches. But we learn something else in Corinth, the, book, the books of Corinthians and, um, and Romans. We learn that he's gathering an offering. He's getting an offering together to help the churches in Judea. Uh, Timothy and Erastus are said in verse 22 to be sent ahead. They're probably making last minute preparations for this offering. Maybe they're making sure it's okay for Paul to go in. Remember, he had not been well received in some of these areas. Um, You can see a little bit closer here where these areas are at. If you want to take a look at a closer look since that map is so big. Um, But anyways... um, he's going to gather this offering. And as I was thinking about this offering, I was just struck by the fact that you remember we saw in Ephesus that when the kingdom of God started to take over people's hearts, they were willing to destroy these pagan books that were worth so much money. And so God's kingdom sort of, um, if we can think about it this way, it empties the skeletons in our closets. It, it, it shines in and it empties all the, the false worship that we have. But it also opens up our our purses. It opens up our wallets wider to the family of God. You might remember the way that the church in Jerusalem was selling belongings. How Barnabas sold some property and gave all the the proceeds to help the church. Antioch sent funds to to Judea to help the believers there. And so that happens again here. Generosity, especially towards fellow members of the body of Christ, is a mark of being God's 
part of God's kingdom. It's a mark of enthroning God as king. One of the great idols we face is money and possessions. Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And so when we give our treasure to bless those in God's kingdom, to further the spread of God's kingdom, it shows that we treasure God's kingdom more than we treasure our own kingdom. It shows that Christ is Lord over all and that we are investing in the eternal riches of full devotion to him. Of course, enthroning Jesus not only had an effect on the finances of the members of God's kingdom, but it had an effect we see on the economy of the culture around them. And the story of the riot in Ephesus reveals how God's people being faithful to live with Christ as king ends up turning the the world of Ephesus upside down. Verse 23, Luke in his classic understated way says, about that time when Paul was thinking about leaving Ephesus, there arose no small disturbance. Uh, The message renders it this way, but before Paul got away, a huge ruckus occurred. (laughs) And the man who lit the fuse for this explosion was this guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. He was also maybe the head of some sort of a group of local artisans, maybe like a union or the Better Business Bureau of Ephesus. I I don't know, but they worked in different trades, but all of these Trades were connected to Ephesus's most well-known landmark, which is the Temple of Artemis. The town clerk later points out that this wasn't just a regional attraction. The whole world knew about the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was the patron goddess of Ephesus. She, they attached a lot of things to her. She was the virgin goddess of the hunt. She was tied to fertility. Um, it was thought that a meteorite, this is that, that idea of this image that fell from heaven, that a meteorite had fallen near Ephesus and they had fashioned this into a, a, um, an idol of a statue to look like Artemis. And this idol was housed within this temple. And the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is alongside, the only ones we still have are, I think, are the the pyramids um, in Egypt. But the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders, if not the greatest of the seven wonders. It was four times the size of the Parthenon, and it was made completely of marble. And this huge imposing structure was in Ephesus. And so you can imagine how influential the worship of Artemis was and how tied to the temple the city and its economy was. We know this in our own day and age. One of the forms of temples in our age are are sports arenas and stadiums. And economies are tied to those things. We've had the the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 here in Louisville over at the Yum Center. There's a lot of people making a lot of money because there's a lot of people going to see basketball. And that, that's what happens when there's a big attraction. And so in a similar way, Demetrius and others made their living. They weren't selling parking or U of L t-shirts or basketballs or anything, but they made their living selling articles that either represented the image of Artemis or maybe that was just the temple itself, little tiny silver temples are made out of other things. And then Paul shows up in town. Paul shows up. More importantly, the gospel shows up. Paul shows up preaching the gospel. And more specifically than just preaching the gospel, he starts preaching against idolatry. Paul must have been a pretty good preacher because even Demetrius, 
knew the main point of one of Paul's sermons. He summarizes Paul's main point in verse 26. He says, Paul is preaching and he's saying, what's the main point? Gods made with hands are not gods. You can almost hear Paul preaching that, right? And, and Paul preaches this message and, and he's, he's proclaiming that Jesus is, is not a God among other potential gods. And he's saying that Jesus is the one true living God, that there's salvation in no one else, that God's fashioned from meteorites, that God's fashioned from silver, are not gods. And as people trusted in Jesus, they understood that Christ had come to be king over their lives and every other false king needed to leave. Every other piece of false worship had to leave. And suddenly the uh, economy that surrounded the temple of Artemis started to dwindle. Enough people heard the message and believed it that it started to impact the local economy and not just a small part. I mean, this is the major industry of Ephesus. Everybody's coming to Ephesus to see the temple to Artemis. And idol makers are losing money because the gospels come to town. And so Demetrius says, we got to do something about this. He gathers everyone together. He says, this is all Paul's fault. And if we don't do something, it's going to get worse. He's concerned about financial loss, but he's also concerned about the apparent injustice done to Artemis. John Stott says that Paul didn't only play on their covetousness. He writes that Dem- uh, that Demetrius didn't only play on their covetousness, but that he also said, quote, that, that Demetrius was subtle enough to develop three more respectable motives for concern, namely, one, the dangers that their trade would lose its good name, two, their temple, its prestige, and three, their goddess, her divine majesty. So the combination of all these things is what sparked the riot. F.F. Bruce says, when religious devotion and economic interest were simultaneously offended, a quite exceptionally fervid anger was aroused. A quite exceptionally fervid anger, which means in layman's terms that they're ready to flip cars and burn couches in the streets. I mean, this is full-on riot. You see the results here. Those uh, at this meeting are enraged. They start shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They fill the streets. They go down. Um, they, they fill the streets and the city with this confusion. There's a theater in Ephesus. This is amazing. Still there. This is what it looks like now. Massive theater. Seats about 25,000 people. And this is where they all end up. They end up in this theater. This is what it would have looked like. Isn't that amazing that that's preserved for us? But they head to this, this theater and they drag Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's companions from Macedonia, with them. Uh, maybe these guys were like bait for Paul. But his friends and some of the leaders of the city say that this mob is out of control, Paul, and you, they're not people to be reasoned with. Don't go into, um, into the theater and try to make a defense. And so somewhere between Demetrius's organized meeting to this gathering uh, in the theater, confusion broke out. There's, there's, there's outrage and people don't even know why they're there. There's a number of people who, who they're in the theater, they're shouting, they're screaming. Everyone's screaming different things and nobody knows why they showed up. Isn't that the spirit of our age? <laughs> we don't know why, but we're all really mad and we're all angry and we're all yelling at each other. <laughs> Eventually, Alexander, a Jew, tries to speak up. Uh, probably intending to distance Judaism from Christianity and say, hey, just so you guys know, 
this isn't us. But they realize, well, he doesn't respect Artemis either. either. And so for the next two hours, the crowd starts shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. So it's almost four o'clock. So as you go home, uh, when you look at the clock and it's six o'clock, that's about the time they stopped shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were in a rage. And eventually the guy who's able to calm them down is the town clerk. He shows up and he says, listen, guys, everybody knows that Artemis is great. You've just affirmed that over and over and over again. We all get it. Artemis is great. But he also says that Paul and his companions had done nothing wrong. He said they haven't robbed the temple. They haven't spoken specifically against Artemis. And so if Demetrius has a problem, then he needs to take it to the court. If you guys have issues, let's deal with this the way that we're supposed to. We're civilized people, I think. Uh, and finally, they disperse as a group of tired and probably sore-throated people. Maybe it was between 11 and 4, so they went home and took a nap. Um, but you'll notice again that what Luke is doing is he's, he's, he's affirming that Christianity was not this politically subversive group. They weren't riotous lawbreakers. It was just everyone else around them. When Paul and his companions brought the message of the gospel, everyone rioted. And everyone responded with great fervor. Why? Because that's what happens when someone confronts your idols. That's what happens in our own hearts when someone confronts our idols. In fact, that's how we know what our idols are. How do you know what the false idols in your heart are? It's the stuff you're hiding in your closet that you don't want to find anyone to find out about. It's the thing that you're going to get angry about someone trying to take away from you. It's the thing you're willing to shout about for two hours straight. It's the place your money goes. It's the thing you'll sin to get. It's the thing you'll sin if you don't get it. These are the idols in our hearts. And, and Paul was preaching against the idols of Ephesus. The gospel of King Jesus um, confronts our idols unashamedly. And that's why the gospel, when it's rightly preached, makes people fighting mad. People get angry when they hear the gospel truly preached. And it turns cities upside down because it attacks the idols in our hearts. Tim Keller was preaching on this passage at a conference, he says this, Paul in his preaching of the gospel always took on and challenged the idols of the culture, the idols of the people's hearts. And therefore you can't really minister the gospel in a life-changing way unless you, like Paul always did, discern and expose and challenge the idols of your place. Paul preached the gospel in such a way that it changed his converts' lives because he went after the idols of the region and the idols of the people's hearts. When people converted, it so changed the way in which they lived in the world that it affected the culture. Listen to this. In most cases today, there's a lot of folks having born-again experiences, as they say, deciding for Christ, saying, I've received Christ as my Savior. But they don't live any differently than anyone else in the culture. I think that's because their idols weren't confronted, confronted with the gospel. 
we're reminded that the gospel is not a few nice ideas that we add to the sum total of our other beliefs. We're reminded that Jesus isn't willing to sit on a throne with some other God. Idols aren't allowed to remain in the halls of our hearts when Jesus ascends to rule and to reign over us. And that causes upheaval. And Jesus knew it would. In fact, that's what he said he came to do. You remember in Luke, he says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. We sing about that at Christmas time. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. I will divide your family at its closest ties. Jesus has come to cause no small disturbance in our lives and in our culture. In some ways, this is exactly what the gospel should do. It should cause a riot in the streets if we're rightly preaching it. If we will let Jesus cause no small disturbance in our hearts and in our lives and in our churches, then we'll find that the shockwaves of that kind of true devotion to God's kingdom are going to spread deep and wide. How did this happen in Ephesus? And understanding that, how might it happen here and now? I want to offer a few thoughts to that end, but I want to also say this isn't some sort of formula. If we do X, Y, Z, that's how we have a great awakening in the city of Louisville or in the United States. Rather, I think this is just a picture of the conditions that set up God's kingdom to do its life-changing work in and around us. The first we talked about last week, if, if, if we're going to really see these, these shock waves spread through culture and th- spread through our city and spread through our church, uh, the first place it's going to start is a committed church. I think I have five of these. A committed church. One, two, three, four, five. A committed church. Meaning a church that f- that's focused on letting Christ be king. A church that's focused on holiness that's focused on submitting all that we are and all that we do to the rule of Christ. As we keep things hidden in our hearts, as we allow false worship to continue in our lives, then why would we be surprised that we have no power as individuals to change the world? Why would we be surprised that we have no power as a church? We said two weeks ago, let's stop messing around. (laughs) That's sort of the application. Let's stop messing around. Let's let Jesus rule over every part of who we are. That's when the power is going to come. Second, uh, the committed church, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, so I won't belabor that, but how can we cause no little disturbance around us? Through a clear gospel. A clear gospel. This is what I'm trying to hint at with the confronting idols. If we want to turn our our city and our world upside down for Jesus Christ, then we not only need to exalt Christ as King in our lives and in our church, but we also need to preach a gospel that confronts idols and calls people to enthrone Jesus as King. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that that we should preach a gospel of works and merit. We don't ask people to clean out their closets and cast down all their idols first and then come to Jesus because they can't do it apart from Christ's Holy Spirit in them. No, they don't have any power to do it. Jesus tells us that the only thing we need to come to him is our need. 
what you need is to recognize that you need him. We have to admit that we can't save ourselves. We have to confess our sins and acknowledge that we've rebelled against God and that we've worshiped false idols. And then we trust that Jesus has paid the penalty for all that false worship in our lives and all that rebellion. And then we trust that he will give us his righteousness and he will give us his spirit so that we can walk in the ways that he's called us to. And so we proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. But as we proclaim that, we help people count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. We, as the Great Commission says, teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, not to earn their salvation, but because Jesus is Lord and King of their lives. We help those around us to see the idols in their lives. We expose idolatry. And then we say that Jesus has come and he's the only one that deserves worship. We call people to forsake false gods and to worship the one true and living God, the only one who can satisfy what our hearts are longing for. We're not calling them to legalism. We're calling them to freedom. Freedom through putting death, sin to death and self to death and, and truly allowing Christ to reign as king. We proclaim a clear gospel that lets people count the cost of what it means to really follow Jesus. How do we do that? How do we keep the gospel clear? This third thing, we have a persistent word-centered ministry. A persistent word-centered ministry. The key to the upheaval that happens in Ephesus in, chapter, in verses 21 through 41, is found in verses 8 through 10. And that's because Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches for three months. Then he leaves and he goes to the, the hall of Tyrannus and he preaches for two years every day. That's how people understood what it meant. It took a long time. But Paul was persistent in teaching the scriptures. And we have to be persistent in a word-centered ministry that calls people to understand what the gospel is and how it's going to be worked out in their lives. I'm convicted that 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 can't be just right now, everyone. This can't be it. This can't be the only time that we're saturated in the word and understanding what it means to follow Jesus as king. Because we're getting a lot of other messages all day long. It's got to be in small groups. It's got to be in one-to-one gatherings where we get together and read the word. It's got to be in Bible studies that you lead in your workplace, with your family, in your home. If we want to see the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom spread deep and wide, then, then we need to spread God's word deep and wide in our lives. One person I read, I don't remember who, said that it could be, you remember when, um, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was, where they, they went to um, Titius Justice's house. I believe that was in Thessalonica. Um, they, they went there. Paul left um, the synagogue and went over there. That that may show us home meetings. And then we have Paul here in the, the school of Tyrannus. And that may be more this public ministry. We need all of that. I, I don't know what it looks like for each of us, but what if you started a Bible study at your workplace? That's the hall of Tyrannus. What if you, uh, in the morning just said, hey, what if everyone showed up and we read the Bible together and I, we talked about who Jesus is? That'd be bold, right? And you met every day. What if you did it at lunch? 
But what about in our homes? Do we teach the Scriptures daily to our children? Do we read the Scriptures with one another? Do you want me to come to your work and lead a Bible study? I'll do it. <laughs> I was thinking about Paul. Paul's everywhere. Maybe, maybe you've got a place and you say, hey, why don't you come help lead a Bible study? Or will you show up and let's do some time one-on-one? Or um, we, We've got people that can help you be saturated in the Word and think about this and engage with others. Do we need a do we need another time during the week? Maybe, maybe it's not every week, but maybe we took a season and we said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to meet every Wednesday for the next eight weeks, and we're going to do a study in addition to what we do on Sunday mornings because we want to want to know the Word better. We want to understand what it means that Jesus is King. I don't I don't know, but I think if we're going to see great change happen, we need to be persistently Word centered, and we need to saturate ourselves in the Word. And it's not going to happen just on Sunday mornings. We need to find ways to to incorporate the scriptures over and over throughout the week into our lives. You may say, well, no one will come if I have a Bible study. No one will come if you preach on Wednesday nights. People don't do that anymore. Why'd they do it in Wales in 1904? They sat in the, for four hours they sat there and listened to the word. I I think that's an excuse. (laughs) I've made the excuse too. But when God's really working and doing something and people start to hear the truth of the gospel, they'll show up. That's something to brainstorm on, okay? Let's think together. I'm just spreading some seed. <laughs> so we have a, um, a a committed church, a clear gospel, a persistent word-centered ministry. If we want to see no small disturbance, then we're going to need to expect opposition, an expectation of opposition. That's the fourth thing, an expectation of opposition. What did Paul describe Ephesus like? It was like fighting beasts. He said, we came to the end of ourselves in those three years of ministry. They faced violent opposition. What would have happened if Paul walked into that theater? Could have been torn apart. Are we ready to confront people's idols and face opposition? Fight beasts? Deal with difficulty? It's not going to be easy. Last, we need a conviction that God alone is great. We need a conviction that God alone is great. Maybe this is more foundational than we even realize. What were they shouting? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul was saying, God alone is great. And that's true. God alone is great. God alone deserves worship and praise. God alone deserves glory in this world. Not Artemis, not any other false idol, not any other false worship. And people are trapped in darkness. They're trapped in addiction and sin cycles and they are worshiping false idols and some of them are enraged and they don't even know why. Some of them are outraged and and they're trapped in this world and they don't even know why they're there, but everyone's around them and they're confused and discouraged. And we know that God is great and that he has sent Christ and that he alone is great. And that's why we need to try to 
turn the world upside down and cause no small disturbance and confront people's idols and tell them the truth about who Jesus is. And it's got to start with us. And that's going to be hard. But God alone deserves glory. Can I show you one more picture? You know what this is? That's the temple of Artemis. <laughs> one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that column didn't stand. They just kind of dug out a bunch of pieces of it and set it up so that when tourists show up, they know where it once was. It's literally a marsh at this point. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And yet here we are, the church, 2,000 years later, still here. Temples all over this room, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to go out, and proclaim that God is great. Great is God alone. He is the only one that deserves worship and praise. And all other temples in this world and all other false idols will one day look like this. And Christ alone will reign. And so we need to proclaim this and we need to confront the idols and the false worship and say, listen, it's not true and it's sucking your life and it's going to die and you will die with it. But God alone is great. As those filled with God's spirit, we're called to invite others to be a part of God's eternal kingdom. The kingdom where King Jesus reigns and sets us free from false worship and sets us free to find true joy in serving him and walking with him. And so may we be fully devoted to him and call others to this difficult task, but this joy-filled worship of Jesus as King. And then may the shockwaves of true devotion to God's kingdom spread far and wide in our city and in our world until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom forever.